Welcome to Clark County Today. I'm your host, David Medor. Our guests today are Doug Johnson and Mark Korsness. Mark and Doug are from the Bonneville Power Administration, the BPA, and your position is a public affairs specialist. And Mark, you are the senior project manager for these new transmission lines that are scheduled to come into our area in order to provide better electrical infrastructure for us. The question is, uh, first opening question here, is what is Bonneville Power Administration, what is BPA doing to uh, correct or to correct any misinformation or to minimize any negative impacts that these lines may have in order to maximize the benefit and be able to balance the cost out of this project? Yeah, well, BPA is proposing to build a new transmission line from a new substation near Castle Rock to a new substation near Troutdale. So as we consider doing that, uh, we want to involve the public and bring everybody who has an interest in the project to the table so that we can consider everything people want us to consider okay. and select the best possible route for that new transmission line. And if we do build it, to make sure that we minimize impacts to people. The Castle Rock to Troutdale is basically north to south. It's mostly north-south. Mm -hmm. Are there connections in this area? Is this servicing Clark County, or is this part of a larger national grid? The proposed project fixes a capacity issue between the transmission system up near Castle Rock and the transmission system down near Vancouver, Troutdale, Portland. So what it does is connect up with existing lines up near Castle Rock, provides a new path or a new pipe for electricity to flow north or, or to flow south or even north if necessary uh, with the system down at Troutdale. It also completes a loop around the Vancouver, Portland area of a 500 kV system which not only increases capacity, but will increase reliability, such that if we lose any segment of that loop, we can still feed all of the substations by the rest of the loop. So this part of a loop, has the, has the other portion of the loop been constructed, or is this the first leg of it? Uh, the, this, we have a 500 kV system that runs from north to south through Castle Rock into the Portland area, and then over to Troutdale. The part we don't have is the connection between Castle Rock and Troutdale. Okay, so that, that part has already been constructed. Yes. So this completes the rest of it. I guess it gives you redundancy. It gives you more reliability. Is that the it, it reason why the loop? More capacity. More capacity to get energy in and through the area. And it's important to point out that the lines on that side, the lines that have actually been serving the area and points beyond north to south, were actually constructed in the late 60s. We haven't built a major project in this area of the northwest since 1969. It's one of the reasons that we've had to take a look at building this project because we are experiencing times when the peak energy demand in the area is spiking and it's hard to get energy in and out. Um, and it's important to point out that 75 to 80 percent of the energy that's carried through our 500 kV system into the area is actually consumed in the Portland metropolitan area. Um, Clark County, Portland, points just south of Portland. Some of it does eventually travel south through the area, but a predominant amount of that energy is consumed here and will stay here. Um, so we want folks to know that and, and be clear on that point. That really seems to be kind of amazing, surprising, that since 1969, you said, was the last major construction of a, the backbone 
of the power grid in this area, yet we've had all this growth, and I expect you've seen a lot of increase in the consumption of electricity, mainly because of the, it's, it's just ubiquitous, it's everywhere. Well, I guess we had a large consumer of electricity on the Columbia River uh, that was a aluminum processing or smelting plant or something there. Uh, they they use massive massive amount, right? So that must have decreased when they when that, when they stopped that business. Is that right? Sure, it's a very dynamic system. So people turn on air conditioners and off air conditioners and build new homes. New factories are built. Others close. So we consider all that and and run studies that take the latest information on what has happened recently and what is likely to happen and model that so that. We've, as Doug said, we've worked very hard over the last 40 years to avoid building new transmission lines, try to operate the existing system as efficiently as we can uh, because it does cost money to, to build new transmission. So, but we've, we've utilized every, every option we have, we believe, to postpone the need to construct a new line. So as we approach that date where it's needed, we've started this process so that we're prepared to start construction and build this line should we ultimately decide to do so. And, and energy consumption has changed. The type of industry that's here a lot different. You have semiconductor companies that are here. Um, they need the clean delivery of energy. Um, if they have just a bobble on the system that wouldn't even make the lights in this room flicker, they can be throwing away tens of thousands of dollars of product. If there's just a momentary glitch in delivery of energy to one of those plants that makes those things, it's gone. A lot of products gone. So they really rely on the capacity being here to deliver energy uninterrupted in a very clean fashion. Um, and like Mark said, air conditioners, heat pumps, other types of devices that are being used now are much different than serving an aluminum plant, which is a pretty consistent sucking of energy on a regular basis. But as you get that kind of you know, up and down use of other types of products, the energy demand changes uh, and the need for capacity presents itself just as much as a big consumer of electricity like an aluminum plant. And I expect that here in the United States, if we want to be a technology leader, we need clean, reliable electricity. There's, I, I don't, I'd be surprised if there'd be much opposition to just simply uh, realizing that we need to invest in infrastructure. We need to make sure that we maintain our ability to be manufacturing, to jobs rely on uh, reliable electricity. So that's a foundation. We need it. It's going to be built uh, because we're not going to give up our leadership in, in the world. We need to be able to have uh, reliable electricity. So if it was just a matter of mechanical engineering and electrical engineering in order to get the power from here to there and, and people weren't involved in, in the works, it would be a very simple process. But there's been a complication. And the complication is there's a perceived threat uh, that people, uh, they, they feel this, this, there's some fear. There's some fear, fear of the unknown. And I'd like to be able to have us address that a little bit. Now, the fear of the unknown there is the ELF, extreme, EMF, extremely low-frequency electromagnetic fields. That's the type of electric, yeah, the ELF. You're right. Part of the yep. electric and magnetic field equation. Yep. Yep. And is, uh, the and the other part of this is that the property values, property values. Are, if you have a large transmission line go right by your home, then that that's not such an, an attractive thing. People call mm -hmm. that an eyesore. 
and, and property values are related to desirability. You got power lines right there, big, massive power lines. Your property values are, are not going to be as good. Uh, related to that, just simply the eye perception of it is the belief perception of people. They look at it and they think, oh man, that must have these monstrous magnetic fields that could be killing me. And that perceived, even if there's nothing to it, the people, if they fear that, then they say, oh, I might consider that, but man, I'm going to have to get a, I'm only going to pay this much for that home. And so the perception has a whole lot to do with that, and it could make your life very difficult. Uh, if we can just talk for a few minutes about uh, the EMF, electromagnetic uh, fields, yeah. uh, in order to get people some kind of a benchmark as to what are we talking about here. Um, one of the things I'm, uh, I, I think is unfortunate is even the terminology that we use. Radiation. We, we electron, this is radiating magnetic fields. Well, uh, radiation in this is not to be confused with nuclear radiation. Mm-hmm. Nuclear radiation is actual electronic particles, atomic particles, that we know the mechanism that they cause danger. They end up, we, we know exactly how that works. This has nothing to do with, electri- with uh, nuclear particles right. radiating. We have a fireplace, that, ra- that radiant type of heat that radiates uh, nice warmth. And there's, no, there's nothing dangerous about right. that unless you're going to inhale this stuff. Yeah. So what you're talking about are electric and magnetic fields. Um, there are electric fields and magnetic fields mm-hmm. associated with high-voltage power lines. Yep. And they're all around us. Um, they are. The microwave that you use in your house, uh, the computer that you type on at home and work. Um, all electrical products actually emit electric and magnetic fields. The magnetic fields are what people are principally concerned with because there is some epidemiological evidence out there. There are studies that show that there is a potential um, small chance that they could be affiliated with certain certain health risks. Um, so with that understanding, I want to kick it to Mark because Mark understands having done several of these projects, or mm-hmm. several probably, an insult to Mark. Mark's been with BPA for some time and has managed numerous projects um, and has, has dealt with this issue and other issues in the environmental reviews that we do. So it would be best for Mark to kind of lay out how we handle that issue in the environmental review and what information we'll be able to present to people as this process unfolds. Okay. So Sure. So briefly, you know, we understand how to build and site safe, reliable transmission lines. We do it all the time. But every time we propose a new project, we realize, as much as we know, we don't know everything. And we can do a better job of making decisions by working with the public and elected officials and anybody who has an interest in the project. So that's why we invite everybody to the table. And we get Mm -hmm. comments and ideas from them, and we learn about what their concerns are. And there are dozens of things that people are concerned about. So Mm -hmm. it it really can't be reduced to just one or two top things. It depends on who you are, where you live, and what your interests are. One of the things that many people are concerned about is EMF. And electric fields create what's called a nuisance shock. So you might uh, walk up and touch your car if it's parked underneath a line and get just a little bit of a nuisance shock. We, we design our lines so that that's all you get is a very minor, minor induced shock. Which there. is the same thing as scuffing your feet across the carpet and touching the doorknob, right? It is. It's, it is. it's electrostatic charge. And, yeah. and, and generally there isn't any concern about health effects from that. Uh, the other side of EMF are, are magnetic fields, and there are some people that are concerned about that. So mm-hmm. we're... 
uh, dedicated to providing in the draft environmental impact statement that will be made available to everyone. Everything we can find out about magnetic fields and the studies that have been done about health effects and so on so that mm -hmm. people can decide for themselves. Because the scientific community to date, uh, it, you know, the, the, the uh, data and research is inconclusive as to there being any negative health effects. But research goes on. So we're going to provide all of that to the public. And in the meantime, uh, with the advice of some uh, agencies, World Health Organization and so on, we're going to implement low-cost design methods to minimize magnetic field strengths for people on the ground. Because we might as well go ahead and do that because people are concerned about that. That means we're concerned about it, so we're going to do what we can there. So mm -hmm. we can do things like uh, use certain tower types and position the conductors up in the air to minimize the magnetic fields that are created on the ground. Uh, as you may know, our typical 500 kV transmission line, which is, is proposed here, uh, requires a 150-foot wide easement. And mainly to provide safe electrical clearance, we don't allow any buildings on that 150-foot wide easement. But we do allow off the easement. So uh, there are, in many cases, induced uh, magnetic fields and electric fields off of our easement. So in the environmental impact statement, we're going to provide calculations and charts that show people what those field strengths are and show how they drop off as you move away from the transmission line and across the edge of right-of-way and so on and have a discussion and compare those uh, numbers with, as Doug mentioned, the uh, field strengths that are created in our homes and businesses mm -hmm. and people can decide for themselves um, how, how concerned they are. And that's one of the things we consider in siting the new line. Certainly we're looking at options that route the transmission line mostly away from homes and businesses so that there isn't that concern. Mm -hmm. When it comes to just simply the perception of the danger, when people look at these uh, 500,000 volt transmission lines, they think, man, that's huge. In reality, what they're looking at, they're not looking at the actual uh, what generates the magnetic field current, they're looking at the voltage. And the voltage is why you put the lines up so high, why you have just a, such, such uh, long uh, insulators. In reality, the reason that, you, that these towers are so large and so high and the insulators are so long is because you guys crank the voltage way up so you can crank the current way down, right? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to get as much power through those lines as we can mm -hmm. so that we can not have to build additional lines anytime soon after. So, uh, yeah, the, the voltage is what causes the wires, which are, which are bare, they're not covered in, in mm -hmm. rubber or any insulation, requires them to be so far off the ground, mm -hmm. so that requires tall towers. Yep, and if you had a lower voltage line trying to run through, you'd have to run a lot higher current through it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. In order to get the same power through it. And it's the, it, voltage, does it make any magnetic field, just voltage? So, but current does, right? That's my understanding. So when, so when, when uh, you put up these large lines, uh, people look at them and think, man, that's really, must be a big source of magnetic field. In reality, uh, it could be that just simply lower lines closer running through the neighborhoods could actually generate more magnetic fields than these line, these, these high voltage lines. Actually, I, I, uh, I borrowed one, one of these... Uh, Gauss meters, they measure the, the EMF, uh, and I drove all over uh, Clark County the other night, sticking it on my window and measuring, and what I found is that electromagnetic fields are everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, the, just simply going up and down some of the streets here, say they vary uh, from 
4 to 10 to 12 milligauss in this area. Uh, just to, it was interesting to me because I haven't really looked at the strength of magnetic fields for some time. And so the, I, I didn't realize, I had to ask one of the engineers here, uh, what is the strength of the, the Earth's magnetic field? And it varies from 300 to 600 milligauss, uh, gauss being the unit of magnetic uh, strength. And this area is about 450 milligauss. Well, we have transmission lines that run right up close to our building here. So I took this guy out there and I measured it, and, and uh, it's about 40 or so milligauss, which is about 10% of the strength of the Earth's magnetic field, right underneath the lines. And I've uh, looked all over the place, where can I get the strongest magnetic field? And I really couldn't get from transmission lines anything that would, purport, that would be anywhere close to the Earth's magnetic field. So these fields, even though they look massive, even though they look very you know, foreboding, they're small compared to the Earth's magnetic field, which is ever-present. And that, True. to me, was, was, was offer some assurance that, hey, we're not talking about these things that just make it look small. Yeah, it, it's a complex issue, and, and neither Doug and I or, nor I are experts at it. That's why we've hired experts to help put together a summary in the draft EIS. And it will show uh, the, the average and the maximum magnetic field strength for any part of the line of all the segments that are proposed, and it varies depending on where, where it's built and whether it's near an existing line or not. So, and, and as I said before, we can position the conductors and lines such that if we're building next to an ex existing line, we can actually design it such that it partially or totally cancels out the magnetic field strength from the new line. So, so for when people are concerned about their, their health and the magnetic field strengths, in, in that document, they'll be able to look at, at, a, at a chart or a graph of where they live and see mm -hmm. what the change in magnetic field strength proposed is. So along with that discussion of, you know, what does your electric blanket do to you and what, what does a microwave create as far as magnetic mm -hmm. fields and so on. So yeah. we're, not, we're not here to tell people how to think. We're here to provide all the information we can right. to them so right. they can reach their own conclusions. Yeah, let them decide. And Mark did hit on a very important um, subject, um, you know, when we talk about safe distances. Um, he did talk about the distance of the right-of-way and where the line's placed on it. Typically 150 feet wide with the line in the middle, giving you anywhere from 55 to 70 feet of clearance, depending on where you are on the edge of the right-of-way or where your property may be. When we talk about safe distances, we're talking about the electric fields. We're talking about the same effect of you walking up and jabbing a pin into a light socket. Because if a tree or a structure or somebody gets too close to one of those you don't want any arc uninsulated water. lines, we know that an electrical shock can severely injure or kill you. Mm -hmm. um, but again, like he said, nobody in the electrical industry, nobody in the health industry, nobody in the World Health Organization, the National Institutes of Health has said there's tangible evidence that magnetic fields are harmful. But because there is some evidence that suggests there's a possible link there are some low cost and other measures that you probably should take just in case. And, and because of the just in case scenario, like Mark said, we do review the current literature. Mm -hmm. We do have third party experts actually 
collecting all of those studies that have been done yeah. since the last time we would have built a line to collect that information and find out if there's new information out there that suggests there's not or there is or if we're still in that sure. kind of inconclusive area we've been in since, quite frankly, the 1990s, 1980s when this first became an issue. Yeah, there have uh, been so many studies that have been done on this and uh, the World Health Organization, National uh, Cancer Society, uh, these well-respected uh, organizations whose job is to make sure that people, uh, people's risk are minimized, they find no connection between uh, the, the occurrence of cancer and EMF. And they, what I've been able to discover, you can correct me, is that there's be, there seems to be some um, connection between uh, a slight increase in childhood uh, uh, leukemia um, and but they can't find a mechanism there and it's 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 they can't find a causal effect kind exactly. of a connection there can't find the causal right. link so uh, uh, just uh, a couple other benchmarks yeah, I took this guy and you know, put it on a heating pad well you wrap a heating pad around your arm or your leg and and uh, the, the strength of those magnetic fields ended up being 40-some in the one I, I tested. And it's, and it's about the same as standing directly underneath one of these uh, transmission lines. And people use, they sleep under electric blankets. They buy these magnets and they wear them and they wear them on their wrists and think, oh, that makes me feel better. So we've got really a, a, really a mix of people's perception about magnetism, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, and that's where, be, uh, just to make sure that we err on the side of safety, and that's where prudent avoidance comes in. That's the yeah. term that you guys just make sure you don't unnecessarily put people in, in any, just exp why expose them to it any more than necessary. Yeah. So you're, the thing that, that we, here we have opposition is you know, putting these transmission lines through populated areas. Uh, rather in areas where there, there's just simply um, nature, trees, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's, and it's not, <clears throat> you, you quickly realize it's not just EMF. If, if we could prove tomorrow that EMF definitely is not a problem, most people we understand would still not want a transmission line in their backyard. Right. So there's, there's other issues, there's visual, there's, there's noise, there's property yep. values, there's yep. you know, the fact that we have to clear trees to construct them. So yep. we're looking at all those things and seeing what we can do to minimize them. Yep. So you've got multiple routes to consider and the, uh, you have a website that shows those, those potential routes in some of those routes, you already have existing right-of-ways or easements. In other ones, you don't. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's correct. And the what's going to, what's the process of how do you select those routes? If people, first of all, if people go to your website and they see lines drawn on a map, are there other routes that they think? Well, maybe those other there might be some other things you, that is not shown on the map. Are all the lines that are being considered? shown on the map. One thing, yeah, and, and we continue to use the plural lines. Um, while, while there are numerous lines on the map that we have, we want folks to understand, because there's a common misconception among folks that live in Clark County, that we would build, if we chose to build the line at the end of this process and everything penciled out and we still need it, and it's absolutely a foregone conclusion we have to do it at the end, um, there will be one alternative selected from this range of alternatives that we show on the map. We would not actually put 500 kV lines on every segment that's pieced together to make these alternatives. And some people actually think that would be the case. But what Mark's team's doing right now is 
they're in the field looking at survey data. They're combing over all the information that's been gathered since we introduced this uh, project to the public in fall 2009 so that they can ultimately compare these segments against one another, look at all the impacts on those segments, and select the one best alternative at the end of this process. And that's why public participation is so important because we need the public's help in gathering all the information that's out there about wetlands. So you welcome other. the public's input. Absolutely. You welcome the public to speak up and say what they what, what they want, what they don't want. And, and we've used that, and that's how we got the map we have. We've gone through several iterations on the map trying to find ways to route a new transmission line from Castle Rock to Troutdale and minimize impact. So, so we've used our expertise in trying to select routes uh, based on some really great input from the public. We've revised the map a couple times, and what you see there is that combined effort of trying to consider a reasonable set of options that give mm -hmm. you some clear choices. You know, One, again, is picking a route that's mostly on existing right-of-way, something we, we're really considering. The, the other is picking something farther to the east that's in less populated areas that costs more, that has other impacts, but avoids more homes. So, you know, what we have in front of us now is a map that was finalized in, in November of 2010, and that's what we're taking forward, and we're studying those segments and those routes in the draft EIS. Although we continue to learn more and we continue to get input from the public mm -hmm. and, and, and hold the right to make changes in the future, but right now the plan is is that we've gone through nearly a two-year process, have a really good map with some good options on it. That's what we're taking forward. Use the term EIS. That's uh, Draft Environmental Impact Statement. And the in environmental there is not just talking about the environment of trees and critters out there. The environment includes uh, people. Absolutely. And servicing people and making sure that the people are benefited and, and the people are not negatively impacted and, uh, do what, whatever you can to minimize that negative impact. So when people hear the environment, they think, oh, well, that doesn't include me. It does include us. That's why you're, uh, you're involved with this process. You've been two years into it so far, and you've got, what, three more years to go in order to start this out? Uh, the, let me give you the schedule briefly. Uh, right now we're scheduled to come out with a draft environmental impact statement uh, late this year, and that will be shared with the public, and we'll get comments. Ho hopefully we've covered most of the things people have asked us to, mm -hmm. but I'm sure there will be areas that, that people will think we have not adequately covered. So then we'll take comments we receive from the public, go back into the document, gather additional information, and cover all those things and answer all those questions that people still feel we have not answered. And then we're scheduled at the end of 2012 to provide a final environmental impact statement to the public and to our administrator. And our administrator is scheduled to make a decision in January of 2013 as to whether to proceed with construction or not. So be between now and some point in the future, the multiple options, even things that are not necessarily line, lines drawn on the map, it's, it is up in the air. There, in other words, even if there, there are lines drawn on the map now, there may be an additional route that might be worked out between the public and BPA that could find a different route, and this is the time period to do that? Is that right? Well, th that's always an option. Uh, again, we feel really confident of the process we've been through so far, and we feel really confident that the map we have gives us a reasonable set of choices all the way from existing right-of-way 
to new right-of-way to the point where we're getting so far out there, the cost and the impacts to other resources are so great, it's really pushing the limit on our ability to pick something that far east. But we, we do think we have those range of choices okay. and, and some, some options in between. So our, our goal is, as we put this document together and learn about the impacts and the things that people wanted us to consider, that in the coming months, a preferred route will float to the surface, that the project team will be able to make a recommendation to the administrator on a preferred route. So ideally, if things go as we, as we hope uh, by the draft EIS late this year, in that will be a preferred alternative. And the total cost for this project is what? Uh, right now it's estimated at $342 million. $342 million. And that includes the construction, the, any land costs, that's the budget that's set aside for this. Well, yeah, it's not the budget. It's, it's, the, it's the estimate that we did the financial analysis on okay. to help us decide whether to build or not. We are, one of the things we'll consider as we look at one route versus another is the cost. That's a important third to third of a billion dollars is estimated. That's important right. to ratepayers. So there'll be different costs depending on what alternative we pick. That will be part of the decision process also. And I would think, just simply looking at it from a cost point of view, if, you, if BPA already has existing easements that you can just simply say, I don't have to add the cost of the land, we already have the land, that that would be your lowest cost solution, is that right? That's likely the case, yes. Okay, and in the case where you have to buy new land, new route, because you need to be able to get away from some populated areas and there's just too much opposition there, then you have to add the cost of all of that real estate. Yeah, and it's very interesting, David. That's a, that's a great point because what you have in this process a lot of times, a lot of the meetings I've been at, a lot of the people I've talked to over the last two years, you have folks in one area that will tell you, well, you know it's going to cost you less. You've got the land of the West. You've got existing lines there. Why are you even having this process? Why don't you just put a line next to the one you currently have and just end the process now? Mm -hmm. And then you'll be in certain meetings and you'll have people say, well, there are a lot more people that live on the western side of Cowlitz County and Clark County and then in the places where you'd have to go west to east to get to the river crossing to Troutdale. Why are you even considering this piece of property or, or, or this set of alternatives over here when you could just go out there where many fewer people live? Mm -hmm. um, but that's what Mark, Mark's team's doing right now. They're looking at all those dynamics. They're looking at who lives where. They're looking at all of the environmental factors we talked about, which aren't just limited to wetlands and species and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. It's the environment in which we all live. Mm -hmm. you know, us, our property, those things that we care about. And Mark then looks at all these alternatives and says, well, here are the impacts here. Here's what mm -hmm. I can do to take care of some of them. Here they are here. And that's what this process is designed to do, to work with folks to gather information, um, both independently and through them to find out what they care about and what circumstances exist near where they live that we would want to consider as we go move toward a decision on the project. So one question is why not move the line all the way to the east to the point where you get into state-owned or federal-owned land, publicly-owned land that has a lot less, that's going to be much less costly, we assume, than it would be where you go down where you're talking about uh, real estate for homes and, the, and buildable lots. Why not? I, doesn't that reduce the cost uh, significantly to go into those areas? Well, it, it's, it's 70, 75 miles of new transmission lines. So we cross everything from populated areas near Castle Rock and Camas at each end that we really can't avoid to everything in between. So 
you know, one of the main things we're trying to do is avoid homes, and, and we're working very hard. We, we think that all of our routes avoid the need to ask anybody to move out of their home. We, we think we can route all of these paths, 150-foot-wide easement, without going over anybody's home. So that was really important to us. It's difficult to do. It's costly, but that's what we've been trying to do. When you get into avoiding homes, that's one of many things we're trying to do. If we can position the line away from homes, that's good. But we need to consider what all people are concerned about. So people who own land that we would cross, even if there isn't a home on it, are concerned about their timber farm or, or, their, or their farm, or DNR is concerned about the uh, revenue they generate for schools through their uh, timber harvesting, and, and will we interrupt that if we build across their land? Uh, there, there's national monument that's set aside for Congress has set aside. There's there's roadless areas. There's spotted owl habitat. There's just numerous things that people are concerned about. So those are the things we're concerned about, and that's what we'll throw into the mix and consider impacts all those issues as we try to wrestle with it and pick a preferred. So th there is no free lunch or free path where nobody's where somebody says, yeah, it's okay to build there. We haven't found anybody who said, right. please build Come across build our here. property, whether it's a federal or state agency or a private uh, person. I think to step back a little bit, it's important for uh, pe the people of Clark County to know how BPA operates. Um, there's a common misconception that we're a taxpayer-appropriated agency like a lot of other units of the federal government, the mm -hmm. Commerce Department, the State Department, Justice Department. We're not. We actually are a self-funded agency. Uh, we collect revenue from the power lines that we operate and from the marketing of the energy from the 31 dams in the northwest and the one nuclear plant here. We cover our costs. We borrow money from the Treasury to use as capital to build these projects and maintain these projects. And we pay that. We, we make a payment to Treasury every year. We pay that money back just like any other business does to whatever whoever's financing their operations. Mm -hmm. um, that's why when people say, "Well, you know, it's only a couple more hundred, a couple more hundred million to go here," or it's a couple more hundred. Well, that comes out of your pocket, comes out of my pocket. I'm a customer of Clark Public Utility District, which is a major customer of Bonneville. Mm -hmm. So any increase we have in capital for any project that we have, be it improvements at the dam, energy efficiency. Uh, fish and wildlife costs that we incur through the program that we operate or transmission building and, uh, and, and those kinds of things is ultimately going to hit me through my public utility if I'm sure. a public utility customer. Um, all, of the, all of the investor owned utilities here in the Northwest actually use our transmission system as well in certain cases to get power from one point to another. So we have to really carefully manage our expenses make sure we can recover the costs through the operation of the uh, equipment that we own and through other, other operations that require capital financing to make sure that the Northwest ratepayers are getting sufficient value out of the things that we do. Sure. And we don't go to exorbitant cost, go to the exorbitancy of cost to mitigate certain things. Which so is good be because not every branch of government operates that way. You, you are aware of the, the costs and the trade-off for that, so you try to get the most bang for the buck. I am curious, though, that even, I, I expect that whatever course you take, you guys have taken a, you're taking on a hard project because you're going to get opposition no matter what you do. The question is, what can you do to minimize the, to, to, uh, mix, min, minimize the negatives and um, I, I expect that people are going to wonder why 
uh, not go east. In, in, I think in many people's minds, in, in mine, I'm not an expert in this area at all, but just speaking as a citizen, I would think that, that if you're going to go into state-owned land or publicly-owned land or basically into, into the areas where you're away from the populated areas, that the cost of that land is going to be a lot less than going through town. I would think that your, that your real estate, yeah. is that not right? Well, uh, in general, the farther you go east, mm-hmm. the more costly the line. And that's because we, we would need to purchase easement, negotiate purchase of easement from state agencies. They don't give us easement. We have to purchase it. Same from uh, large timber companies, same from smaller parcels. So that, that land costs us money, whereas building on existing easement doesn't. Also, when we build new right-of-way out in the middle of the woods, which is one of, you know, we have several options we're considering there, we have to build a road system to get to each one of those towers. That's really costly, trying to build roads to every tower for 70 miles. So those are a couple of the costs that maybe people don't realize if we, if we go off into the, into the woods and build a transmission line. Okay, I, I'm thinking that when it comes to, uh, you, you must know about what the percentage is of what I would call publicly owned land, whether it's owned by Department of Natural Resources, the federal government, the, some other state agency. Uh, you must know about how much of the, this land is, falls into that category. Uh, let me just mention that there's a, uh, of the organizations in this area that have, people have banded together. You got No Way BPA, you got all, uh, Another Way BPA, and, and groups of people that have united and they have come up with this, this uh, gray line, I call it, which is very east, uh, and they go into this, what they consider to be low-cost real estate. They assume it's low-cost real estate. It's still publicly owned, I mean, much of it, I would think, public. How much uh, is that in that gray line is publicly owned? Well, you know, the gray line isn't really a line. It's a concept. And, yes. And there are various proposals They're, to go even farther east and north than we have. So... We, we've looked at that, we've worked with those organizations, and they've been great in providing us information and ideas. That's one reason the map looks the way it does, is because input from them. Most recently, we looked at a further east and north option, specifically going north around Silver Lake or east of Yale Lake, and mm-hmm. determined that, that those choices didn't give us anything we didn't already have. Basically, you were just trading one set of homeowners and landowners' impacts for another. There's, there's good things about going farther east and north, and there's bad things. But there's always another line to, you could draw on the map. So It's true, but the, really, in order to... At some point, there's going to be a compromise. At some point, you're going to, there's, somebody's going to have to get past the impasse where you maximize the number of people that are satisfied, that feel like you guys did whatever you could in order to uh, put the line where it impacts people the least. And um, why don't we look at the, uh, the, the uh, map you have here, and I assume you don't have the gray line on there, is that right? Uh, right. Okay. So if you were to look, maybe you can point out which line, uh, help us to understand this map. Sure. Uh, actually, this uh, different map would show land ownership. This one doesn't. But um, if you look at this area here, which is the K segment, that crosses mostly Weyerhaeuser land. So we've worked closely with Weyerhaeuser. 
I assure you they don't want us to cross their land because that interrupts their logging practices and ability to log, uh, cable log, and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've, we've gathered information and proposed a route across their land as is shown there. So that's definitely out in the woods where there aren't any homes. Well, I, I wonder if, if, because we don't show the ownership here, is, is there another, does BPA have another map yep. on your site that does show the ownership? For that, I would think it would be very useful to be able to show the difference between publicly owned land and like timber uh, company owned land. Uh, because public, maybe there's something that, for instance, the state legislature, if it's state owned land in some, by some capacity, can they, they could pass some law that says, hey, in order to minimize, it's better to serve the citizens rather than charge big bucks to BPA to be able to obtain the easement through there. Uh, they'll make a way that uh, that can be a low-cost option for you. That would require a, some champions in our state legislature to make that happen. But it is one of the one of the recourses that people, if they want to be able to really solve this problem, and if cost of the land is a big issue, why you wouldn't go east, that would be one of the steps that people could take. They wouldn't go to you for that. They would go to the legislature for that, Well, right? that, that's, uh, that's stated that. I've never heard it stated quite that way. Um, we, we do have options that cross mostly uh, or a lot of state land, uh, public land, such as O and P, as you look down in the, the lower part of the map here. Um, so we've worked with DNR and gathered information from them and located these lines across their property, trying to minimize impacts to them but still uh, have the performance we need from a transmission line. They, they, I assure you, do not want us across their land. <laughs> well, when you think about their land, though, the Department the of Natural Resources manage. is managed manage. for the public, and it that's is. maybe part of the, the uh, disconnect here in that they become very possessive. It's our land, and really it's the citizens' land that they're stewards over, and it's a matter of sorting out the priorities. What's more important, timber harvesting dollars, or is it to minimize the impact of uh, the transmission lines through populated areas? Yeah, and, and I, I don't want to speak for DNR uh, other than it's our perception that, you know, that they, they, they would rather we not build across their land because they're entrusted by the state and by the people of Washington mm -hmm. to to produce income from those lands and provide uh, dollars to school districts and so on. So that's what they're tasked okay. with doing. And if we build a transmission line across their, their property, that potentially interrupts that. So if we were to choose to build across their land, we would negotiate full purchase price of easement and do everything we can to minimize impacts. So we're not easily deterred just because uh, it might cost more money. Okay, let's, let's play what if for a minute. What if the DNR was instructed to cooperate with you? Oh, they, they have been cooperating. Well, I'm, I'm going to take it further. Okay. Instructed it, to put a instructed put a tier to say, sign do what they need to do and don't charge them big bucks. So it's, it's publicly owned land. It's going to this is going to serve the public, and don't be so possessive on it. And and the instead of the number one priority is not is maybe a shifted. It's legislated by the state that says. You're no longer, your top priority is no longer to get big bucks off this land, uh, make a profit off the timber. Your priority for this project is to accommodate at a very low cost or just simply a transfer so that this can accommodate. If that happened, I know it's a big if, mm -hmm. but if the, the DNR was in, would, uh, would accommodate that and say, okay, it's a zero land cost, 
what would be your response? That, that, that would be great. It's up to the citizens of, of Washington and, and, and their legislature. That would go into the mix if that lowers the cost of those routes. That's how we would look at it. Would, how significant would that be? Would that be enough to be able to change the priority on this and say, well, that is a, the lowest cost approach now, even though you're going a longer distance, the cost of the land. Could be, could be, yeah. but let's remember that DNR property on that Far East option or that a couple of those options are on the far southern end of a place that we'd have to get to through Castle Rock, through a whole lot of warehouse or pro, um, owned property to the north. Um, across uh, Lake Merwin and, and Yale Lake or out in that area where Pacific Corps owns a lot of uh, property as well. So Pacific Corps being another Pacific Corps being another industry. and Pacific Corps actually being another utility that operates okay. two dams out in that area. Another public utility? So, uh, investor owned utility actually okay. that so they uh, want does investor owned means the they want to generate a profit. Yeah, absolutely. But there's no magic bullet in this process. And I think that we have enough confidence in the process itself not to have to speculate on what if such and such happened. I think that Mark's team's put together a really good, solid range of options that some that are in places where we have property, and remember, there's, there's just as much possibility that we would forego the less expensive line where we own property and basically could start this process at the end of the environmental process much more quickly. We own all a majority of the property on those on those series of lines that are or that one particular path that runs from Castle Rock down into Vancouver. Which which path do you own um, the majority that of that would be the most right over one? here the the one labeled nine down through twenty five, um, but that's why you put that on the map. You own it. It's a place where you could build. It's just an obvious choice. Absolutely. And then you've got to go out and find the other, the other points, the other paths between Castle Rock, Washington, and Troutdale, Oregon, which Mark's team did early in the process, and say, okay, if we weren't just going to use this, where else could we go? Uh, and that's why you put that range of options together. And that's why you tell people early, we're considering this project. We want you involved. It, it could potentially affect you. Um, you're in a place where we're considering building this. And all of these lines that exist on this map today that run between these two points in Castle Rock and Troutdale, mm -hmm. with the exception of these where we actually have an existing line or existing easement, started as mile-wide study corridors where Mark had engineers and other folks on the ground looking at the environmental circumstances there. Well, they've now been dissolved down or lessened down into 150-foot-wide corridors where there actually would be an easement. They've got actually actual preliminary designs for these paths where the towers would be. And that's why the process continues to go. We want people's reaction to those tower placements on their property, to where the line would be in relation to where they live and those other environmental circumstances that exist near where they live. You mentioned 150 feet easement as being the standard uh, for this. Uh, the question is, uh, the, when it comes to that distance, 150 feet, versus uh, in some air states and some areas, they've got regulations that say 350 feet or 350 feet from the edge of the line. Uh, the, the, uh, those are, I guess, state. Uh, in the, it, it's not a federal standard. I right? think what you're referencing, I, I think the state of California has an ordinance passed that says you can't construct a school within 350 feet of a transmission line. There's a lot of misinterpretations of what that particular state ordinance says, but it says that 
the Department of Education in, this, in the state of California says you won't build a school within 350 feet of an existing high voltage line. And is that and that does not apply to Washington State because that's a California state, state law. law. Absolutely. Do you guys pay attention to that here, even though it's not a state law? Do you try we, to comply with that? Uh, no. I mean, you we, we note the purpose for that, and so one of the things we're considering as we look at different routes for the new transmission line is that we want to avoid being near school buildings where children are because people want us to. So that's one of the considerations we made in some electing routes we have. So is that a consideration at this point, or is, is there a pretty firm commitment so far that, that I know nothing's really set in concrete yet, but is that one of your guiding principles as you're discovering them as you go, or one of your, your rules that you're trying to follow to stay clear, 350 feet clear, of a church or a school or some large public gathering place? There really isn't a number associated with it because there isn't any regulation and there isn't any uh, agreed upon number that, that everybody would feel comfortable with. Uh, so what we try to do is stay, afar, stay as far away as we can. And where we do come close to schools, and, and again, it, each individual needs to define what is close, you know, what does close mean to them? Does it mean 100 feet? Does it mean 1,000 feet? Does it mean a mile? Well, just to separate so, it out between 150 feet and 350 feet, you're going to have more people that are going to yep. be, have problems with 150 feet, and they think, I'll take 350. I'm not asking for 1,000. Right. In other words, just, just to keep it so that it's manageable. Uh, the question yes. is, mm-hmm. uh, is... Uh, so, are so, there, there, are no, there are really no numbers at this point. Well, uh, that, but that's one of the things that will be in the draft environmental impact statement and in our decision process is how close do each of these lines come to schools as with how close do we come to houses. Mm-hmm. So, there, again, there is no path that stays three miles from anything. <laughs> you know, the, sure. There, there's just a lot of development in Clark and Cowlitz County and as, as we're trying to get... Sure. from A to B. So, again, we, we try to consider the dozens of things that people are concerned about, and people are not only concerned about schools and houses, they're concerned about um, property values, they're concerned sure. about uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, tax code on, on, uh, on their uh, small timber farm and whether, you know, our cutting an easement across it kicks them into a different tax bracket. Um, they're concerned about uh, funding for their schools and DNR ability to, to harvest timber. They're concerned about recreation and repairing habitats. So those are all things that we're going to consider. You consider all we, we understand, you know, that's, that homes and schools are high profile. That's very important to us, and that's why we're going to look at how close we get to each of those on all of these segments as we consider one versus the other. Okay. Uh, Camas being one of those small communities that has passed an ordinance that basically said you can't, you have to stay within, uh, you, you can't get closer, what, to 350 feet to a new transmi- overhead transmission line. Is that right? Uh, there, there's an ordinance that says any new transmission has to be underground. Underground. But I'm not familiar with distance not, ordinances. I think, and, and we're familiar with the ordinance that says any new transmission would have to be put underground, not overhead. But I'm not. I'm, we're not familiar with any distance. Well, I, I guess we could. We'll ordinances. have to refer to. We'll look it up and we'll, okay. we'll cite that. Uh, the, the question is, even if you had a small town like that that passed an ordinance that said, that said "Hey, you can't do it," uh, if they said, "Hey, BPA, you can't put a transmission line within 350 feet of anything," still, that's not binding on the BPA. You're a federal that, that's correct agency. That's right? correct, and and by law we operate that way, but. 
if they're concerned, whatever they're concerned about that causes them to pass that regulation, we're concerned about the same thing. So that's what we're going to study and we're going to try to minimize in any proposed routes we have. So CAMAS is one of the areas where there are places, you know, where, where we're trying to minimize impact to people. People don't want their home taken. So we have existing easement through there. If we reconfigure the lines that are there, we can make room for the new line. And the way we position that, we can minimize the, the increase in, in magnetic field strengths. In fact, in some cases, there's no increase in magnetic field strength off right-of-way because of the way we configure it. So that's good news. That doesn't mean people say, okay, come on in, build it, because mm -hmm. it's still a visual impact and, and, and other impacts. But that's just an example of, you know, Camus is concerned about magnetic mm -hmm. field strengths and mm -hmm. other things, so we are, and we're going to do what we reasonably can to minimize those impacts. So on one, on one side, we have what's what I consider a, a soft kind of a decision, which is uh, just simply trying to balance out all the different re needs and, or requests of people, trying to minim minimize the number of unhappy people, maximize the number of happy people. And on the other end, you have non-negotiables. And that is one of those non-negotiables is a state law. So if there is a state law that said, you have to be 350 feet or some distance away from schools and churches and house or, or, or existing homes, those kind of things, then that would be binding on the It, it would not. No. Uh, the, it state would not. Can't, the state can't regulate the federal government. So this, it would have to be, so the federal government is bigger than the state. So the state, even the state, can't say you can't do this, you can't do that. So it, this, only the, the federal government can do that. Yeah, the state can't regulate a federal agency. But again, what if the state is concerned about an issue and has passed legislation to deal with it, we're, we're concerned about that same issue, even I, though we're not bound by the regulation. And let me just, just I don't want to belabor the point, sure. but right. I assume that even though the state isn't necessarily a binding agency that VPA can, you can still say, hey, we're going to do it anyway, I would expect it to be very highly unlikely if there was a state law that, you, uh, that VPA would still uh, violate that in the eyes of the state. I wouldn't think you would naturally do that. Well, we, we would uh, we would try to meet the intent of the law or regulation if it's a reasonable choice for BPA to make. So mm -hmm. if they say stay away from schools and we can do it, we're going to do it. But when you stay away from a school or some other uh, issue, you create impacts somewhere else. So you need to consider those too. So, you know, if 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 you solve one problem by not locating on parcel A, that's great, but that means you're locating it on parcel B. So who owns parcel B and what are they concerned about? So we need to consider you know, everybody's issues. Absolutely. That's right. If you have a line, let's say that you've got a straight line on a map from here to here, and there's a few areas that are off to the side of this, is there a, can the line be jogged a little bit this way in that area, a little bit that way in that area? Or how important is it that these lines be straight, or you need well, a different kind of construction of a tower in order to, to have those let's, signs. Let's look at the map here. The lines okay. aren't straight. <laughs> yeah. And that's because we're trying to avoid things. We're trying to avoid things like homes and schools and lakes and mountains and highways. Well, you've got a few basic corners there, but the question is, on a, in a, on a smaller, more micro scale, can you, uh, can you jog the line a little bit this way, may, maybe move it you know, a couple hundred feet this way? Uh, uh, 200 feet that way, are those small fine tunes 
well within the scope, or does that add a significant cost? That's well within the scope, and, and, and this map reflects a lot of that because, again, we've gone through preliminary design, and we have specific tower locations for every segment on that map. So we've already dealt with that at a, at a pretty close level. When we get to the point where we identify a preferred alternative, then we're going to concentrate our resources on dealing with those people who own that land and live immediately adjacent. So we're going to certainly take the opportunity to refine that design, move towers, whatever it takes to, to balance the impacts, minimize impacts to people. So absolutely, we're, we're constantly uh, under uh, review of our designs and making changes. Okay, where you have an existing easement and maybe you have some existing towers and lines in that easement and you want to be able to add this extra, this new line through there, uh, would you leave those existing lines alone normally or and just simply add the additional lines somewhere within that easement or would you actually do some teardown and replacement uh, in that area? Well, the answer is yes to all of those. <laughs> <clears throat> um, segments 9 and 25, which is our westernmost route, is mostly an existing easement that is two lines wide, and we've only used half of it to date. So that means we would leave the existing 230 kV line that's there alone and build a new 500 kV adjacent to it, mostly on existing easement, and not have to purchase anything from anybody. There are lots of uh, variations on how to get through an area such as down between Vancouver and Camas where we, like I said in Camas, we have existing lines and easement. There isn't room for a new 500 but we can reconfigure things there and make room. Uh, sometimes that means double circuiting lines that are already there, putting two circuits on one line, having a single circuit new 500. Sometimes it means putting the new 500 on an existing circuit. Um, there's just just about every, every, every option uh, is represented in, the, in all of these segments here. So whatever works best for a certain area, that's what we're proposing. And anybody interested in actually seeing how that would play out near them who's located near or on one of these segments can get that information from our website. It's www.bpa.gov go i5, and I believe those are forward slashes. Okay. Um, we've actually got a spreadsheet that shows segment by segment whether it would be new right away with a single line in it. Um, if we have an existing line there, it tells whether or not we would place one adjacent or combine the lines on the same tower or a different tower. So they can actually find that out um, mm -hmm. on the website. I'm curious, if people's, uh, uh, if many people, I'm, I know there's a, there's a great multitude and there's many different issues on this, um, but it, for those cases where people are most fearful of the EMF, the magnetic fields, uh, has the BPA ever constructed an, a, a, a uh, it's a compensation kind of a line where you run adjacent, maybe closer to the edge of the easement, with a, a current carrier that will basically cancel the field that would normally be emitted from outside that easement. I know they've done that kind of thing to... Uh, compensate for schools where in California, for instance, where they've got real close, they run this line around and they've got the magnetic field that cancels. Hmm. Is that ever, has the BPA ever considered a canceling, a magnetically canceling line? And you wouldn't necessarily have to call it a, a, uh, a loss. Uh, you could reverse, you know, just pass the, reverse the, the, uh, the current in that, in that line 
doesn't have to be a high voltage line, just needs to carry the same current in order to cancel it, right? Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I've, I've never heard that uh, a proposal like that before. Uh, uh, we've, we've dealt with uh, reconfiguring what's there with what we want to add, but I've, I've never, it's never been brought to my attention before the proposal of building a, a second line Mm-hmm. just for the purpose of trying to mitigate magnetic field strength. It would be interesting to see if that could be addressed or if it's been a, a addressed on a, on a transmission line scale other than a little uh, local area. It would, because, it, again, it, would, it may be, if that could solve the concern, mitigate the concern of many of the citizens, you're not ever going to satisfy all mm-hmm. of them, but if that could say, well, hey, the magnetic line uh, or fields, they're no longer a concern because we have this other measure, and therefore the only, or they're not the only, then you fall back to the next concern, which is basically the property values. And the health issues is, is at least for magnetic fields, is no longer a, a, an issue. That would be interesting to be able to see if there be some merit to that. Well, we're, we're going to look into that, and that's why we have this process. That's why every day we learn something new. So today I learned something new. Oh, um, we'll see if it goes anywhere. It would Never be interesting just to, just to find out. One question I, I'm, I'm curious about is the process. Who actually makes the decision? You're out in the field. You're talking with the public. You're getting input. But at some point, there's, there are people that are making the, the call, you, there's, there's a board or, or a committee that's looking at the different options, considering all the input, and they're, making a, they're voting or they're making a decision. Who are those people? Well, I lead the project team that will make the recommendation to the administrator on both the preferred route and ultimately the route that we propose building. You and said we, you lead the team. Mm-hmm. How big is the team? The team includes dozens of people, but um, there's probably a dozen or so that uh, work most closely with trying to balance those issues. And we meet with the administrator regularly and keep him up to date on what we're doing, and we get advice from him on on other things to include maybe or emphasize that we haven't. So it's an iterative process along with working with the public. It's not something that you can reduce to a formula or sure. a bunch of numbers. Sure. I expect um, so when you're dealing with people, yeah, it's but, no, but there's no formula. But we're confident that, that as we work through this process, that as we consider all these issues, that there will be a preferred route that will float to the surface. Oh, there will be, yeah. I expect, you have to build something. Right. So well, there maybe, will be a preferred maybe. Now, route let's somewhere. remember, maybe, and that's an important part. Mm-hmm. So Mark's team is in the process of putting together that draft environmental impact statement. We release it towards the end okay. of this year. We put it back out for comment. Mark's team considers all of that and the other information they're collecting. Ultimately, that document's finalized. Sure. Sometime in that process, a preferred alternative is, is identified. We then, Mark gives that information to the administrator. The administrator of the agency then says, like the preferred alternative, needs still there as strong as it was, if not stronger, when we, inter- when we um, introduced this uh, project to the public. We're going to build it. And then we issue a record of decision, and the decision is documented in that record. And okay. we put it out, and we say, here's the reason we need it, here's what I've decided, here's what we found during the process, and here's how we're going to proceed. Okay. How significant are local representatives, their input, uh, compared to Joe Public, uh, a, a citizen out there? Do you consider the county commissioners, city council members, uh, state legislators, 
Do you, do, do, does their voice carry any more weight than just a lone citizen or a group of citizens? Well, <clears throat> we, we consider anybody who's interested in the project, and we certainly give great weight to those who are elected representing people. So um, we certainly have worked closely with elected officials and have, have staff that helps us do that. So um, that's really important to Bonneville Power Administration. So you encourage local representatives Absolutely. to be very much involved in this process. Mm -hmm. yes. Have you seen that in our area? How are our, our local Absolutely. representatives? They are Absolutely. Involved. Last November, uh, the uh, county commissioners, Clark County commissioners, actually held a public meeting that they hosted out of the Clark County Events Center. Um, the administrator of BPA, Steve Wright, uh, Mark, uh, and our vice president for the organization that Mark works for, Larry Beckedahl, actually went out and answered questions from uh, the Cowlitz County Board of Commissioners, which were guests at that particular proceeding. We had about 350 people attend that meeting. Um, they've been very involved, very active in the project. They've provided us lots of information. Um, and, you know, they, at the end of the day, they represent the people of Clark County like myself. So, mm -hmm. of course, we're going to listen to what they have to say. So you can have a, which is very good. You have a public meeting like that where you bring in a lot of the public and, and get all the input. And, but then I wonder about just simply having a commissioner or a city council member just sit down, visit you, talk with you, get conversations with you, and maybe write letters and say, okay, this is the position that I, as best I understand my constituents, this is what I, what their voice is, is that I represent. This is, the, so you do consider uh, a lot of weight in that. So the leadership of our local representatives uh, can be very significant. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, Mark and myself have spent time in countless living rooms, fire stations, meeting rooms, libraries, public buildings, having conversations with private citizens. Um, school boards, other representatives, anybody that has a stake in this project that lives in Clark County and, and you know, people who live along these corridors where we're considering building this have had a very strong voice in this. But yeah, we've gotten a lot of letters from uh, local politicians, um, local elected officials, um, appointed and elected, and it's all part of the process. It's all an important part of the process. The decision-making meetings that you have within BPA, I expect they're not open to the public, but uh, maybe you could help me to understand that. You get together with a number of the people that you discuss within the BPA in order to consider all this input, and you're having to do this as a committee, I assume, a board of some sort. Uh, can anybody, are any of those open to the public where they can just come and observe and hear? Uh, you know, it's, it's a process that is taking uh, several years, so we look for every possible opportunity to involve the public. Uh, and, and as Doug says, we, we go out, you know, we visit people in their homes, and, and we go to meetings they organize, and we organize meetings and sure. invite them to come. So that's where we have that interaction. Yes, as, as far I, I understand as the, that. The decision-making process that's part of our everyday job. So we, we do that every day. And in the end, there's a process where we document that. So um, that's not necessarily where the public um, shadows us, but that's the result. You know, that decision is based on the uh, 
conversations and the meetings and the openness we've had throughout the process in, in gathering the information that people want to give us. I understand. I, I have to ask, so, though. The so question there, is, right. if the public wanted to uh, uh, be tuned into not necessarily to make those meetings public input meetings, but mm -hmm. for public who, the, the individuals who want to be able to come in and observe and hear uh, the scheduled meetings that you do have internally, uh, is, is, would that be just asking for trouble? Or is that something you would um, accommodate? Well, I don't think you know, that, that, would, that would be uh, a, a difficult thing as you propose because not everybody can attend. So uh, the, the, the fear there is that when you actually get down to making the, the decision that you need to have some degree of confidence that you can speak honestly and consider everybody's uh, issues and everybody's concerns. And, and that's, that's the end point. Most of the work has already been done. Like I said, things will float to the surface, and, and, and that's where that happens. If you have some people represented I, I'm con, I'm, and, and others not, then... You mean then from the public, you mean? Right. right. So right. Well, be, I'm I, just thinking it's not that they have to represent anybody. It's just that if, the, if individual citizens want to come in and... And if, if the, I mean, it would be going, it would be asking a lot, uh, maybe beyond what would be reasonable because you have to be able to do your job. But it's not like a, a, a commitment that you make to the, to the public that says this is now a public meeting. But at least if, if individuals, representatives or whatever uh, from the public want to be able to just be aware of when you guys have the important meetings, would they be welcome to come in and well, just I observe? Well, I think it's important to strike a balance between getting your work done and informing the public. Mm -hmm. um, and again, Mark brings up a very good point. If you were to say we're having a meeting on X um, from 1 to 3 o'clock in this room in our building, well, who can get there? Who has access to it? Who can come? Um, what we do to facilitate that kind of involvement, if people want to be that involved, is we'll meet with people individually. Mark's met with numerous people who've had proposals, information sure. to present, that they wanted to give to him personally to make sure yeah. that it got included in the process. But you can't open every meeting. You sure. know more as the CEO of U.S. Digital have every employee access to every meeting you have than we would to meetings sure. that we have to get our work done. So you have to strike that balance between I offering am, them access to I you agree. and project officials yeah. and getting your work but done. But I have to ask. Done. Absolutely. I no, I get it. Because people are going to say, why do you need right. to ask that? But I, it's will, a, I, don't want to, I wish I sure. could be a fly we on have, the wall. But I will tell you this. We have probably had more Freedom of Information Act requests. And because we're a federal agency, people can ask for any information about the project um, that, that they think exists or they, they've heard exists. Um, I don't think there's a document that's been produced in association with this project um, that someone somewhere doesn't have through a Freedom of Information Act request that we've provided them. Uh, but that's an important part of this process, too. You know, we're not doing things behind closed doors that we wouldn't share with people mm -hmm. in a very open way. Sure. So if people want to stay informed and to be able to see the process that you're going through in order to, to filter down and finally end up with a smaller and smaller choice, uh, so you end up with a one final choice when you're done, if people want to follow that process, I assume that when you're having these meetings and you're trying to sort that out, that somebody's taking notes and somebody's de de writing out what those decision points were at that point. 
a public information request, would, they, would that be available for people to read those notes to see where you're at? What would they ask for? Well, uh, people can ask for anything they want, and we'll go through the, the FOIA or Freedom of Information Act process to, to provide that. So that, that's, that's I, a safe I don't, answer. I don't, I don't uh, try to defend myself against that or hide right. things. Oh, I understand. That process is but, open, and, and yep. we go through that every, yeah, that every transparency week. transparency is very, that goes a long way. Because then it, it, the, the opposite end, if you, if you try to hide that, you know, we all know that you're not going to get buy-in from the public. They're going to feel like, hey, there's something going on there that shouldn't go on. So well, I get that. Yeah. The question uh, it, is, if you really, if, if people want to stay tuned in and they want to know what progress has been made, what decisions, what has been filtered down so far, specifically, sure. what would they ask for? Well, you know, the, the document that is going to provide all of that Eventual. is the draft environmental impact statement. But between now and then, you're between keeping... Between now and then, we have monthly updates, you know, or nearly monthly really updates. Not quarterly. Qu okay, quarterly, quarterly updates that go out um, to, to, to people. We meet with uh, anybody who wants to meet In with other us. words, the, it, you, the you website is updated. A, a update yes. that basically is supposed to be informative and, and bring people up to speed as to where you are right. and what's been likely eliminated, what's, what's, oh, what's yeah. being filtered. Okay. I, I assure you that, that uh, everything is still on the table, that the team has not zeroed in on any route. There is no hidden, hidden agenda. We, we don't know what we're going to pick yet. We're, we're, we're in the stage where information is just flowing so in. So it's just input only. You know, At this point, that's an analysis. November 2010 is when we... You mean, that's a while ago. Yeah. That's last year. Is, is when we said, okay, this is the map. We revisit it based on comments we receive in the meantime, but that's the map, that's what we're studying, that's what's going into the environmental impact statement. And as those chapters are written and pulled together and we read them this fall, that's what's going to cause us to pick one over another. And that, because that's meant to cover everything that people asked us to cover. All the scoping comments, you know, somebody says, I'm concerned about recreation here, or visual impacts here, or, or EMF here, or, okay. or timber well, income here. That's where all that comes together, and that's where we'll see it float to the service. Great. Well, can I make a, a request that you can include this request in there? Uh, would you look into the field canceling uh, supplemental yeah. lines? Absolutely. Because it could make your life really easy, and it could lower costs to this thing. You could just simply stay within your right of way very likely. Your easement. I, I would ask that not only to have you ask us that, but please, there's the com that's exactly where that comment should go, and that's important because I talk to people at the rallies okay. we host, the public meetings, and they'll say to me, I want you to consider this. And I'll say, you know what? We will. Trust me, if that's a concern to you, that'll be part of what we look at but it's got to be officially presented to us. And, yeah. and we want it to be in your words. Absolutely. So that we don't misconstrue what it, you know. I don't want to mischaracterize what you've got. Um, the other important thing is all the comments that have been submitted to us are available online. So people can look at one another's comments. They can go on the website. Um, you know, again, I said we're two years into the process. There's a, there's a lot of information. The information on the website is voluminous. It can be hard to find, but we do have a toll-free help number for people to navigate that website and figure out the most appropriate way to give us a comment, whether they right. want to do it electronically so or we'll, through a letter, through anything else. So we'll, we have a But submit that comment. We'd really like this. to have that. We really would like to have you submit that comment, provide us. And you may know where you found the information, which would be incredibly helpful to us because then we're not trying to 
backtrack and figure out where this technology exists and who may have employed it? I, I don't remember exactly where I saw it. I, it was basically, a, it's meant to be a shielding for a particular, okay. I think it was next to a school. They ran a, a line around the school and it canceled the field so they wouldn't get into the school. But I don't, I'm not aware of anybody running at the length of, a ma of the transmission line. But in a certain place. But in this in case, it may, it. it may just simply eliminate that, uh, that fear that that, that's a prudent avoidance step that right. we could be taken. And we will we'll publish the 800 number in the Fantastic. website here so people are welcome to go in there and stay tuned in. Uh, so you've got another, when, when you said the draft, uh, the release of this environmental impact statement is going to be when? It's released? scheduled for the end of this year. Okay. So we're doing everything we can to meet that date. It's, it's a very challenging date, but we're okay. doing everything we can. To and when that gets released, then what? Is there a period of time, a, a window of time that's limited where people can respond to that? Yep, there'll be, there'll be 60 or more days where there'll be an official comment period where people can review it and provide comments to us, and we're tasked with responding to all those comments. And so you, you try to answer every question? We, we answer every question, uh, and, and the way we do that sometimes is combine like questions mm -hmm. or uh, like subject matter and either point to the document where that is answered, or if it isn't answered, we go out and do additional work and then answer that in the final okay. EIS. So if people are concerned about this being in their area or they're concerned about their neighbors, then now is the time to give input. Now is the time to give you guys feedback so that you that can be considered when it comes to uh, selecting the line. Absolutely. Which is going to be built somewhere. Possibly. And remember, there, there is a no-build option, and a lot of people will just look at us at meetings and say, there's no no-build option. But there is. You know, things change all the time. But at this point, and we've been telling people since fall 2009, at this point, the information we've collected suggests that we're probably going to need to build a line here by the time we finish this process, and ultimately most likely will. But if we find a way, and one of the things we didn't mention is the fact that we're actually going through what we call a non-wires assessment right now to determine if there are measures that we could use in lieu of a line. Um, they, uh, a group out of uh, San Francisco called E3 did an original assessment of potential measures that could be used in that regard. They said some of these things are pretty costly and may not actually be the technical fixes that you could use, but they're actually going through and doing a full-scale evaluation of these measures they've identified right now that we expect to have by this fall to know whether or not there are other measures that could be used that won't require, to build, require us to build a line. And that's something we do anytime there's a reliability element to a project that we're considering. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, again, the, the, we wouldn't have brought this to the public's attention in October 2009 if there wasn't a demonstrated electrical need for it. So the idea, you already have some connection. You must have some lines between those two points now, right? Yes. Uh, is one of the options that is on the table just simply beefing up those lines that have an extra carriers? Yeah. So they're maxed out. Yeah, yeah the, the, there's a, a lower voltage system that serves local substations. Uh, the 500 kV, the highest voltage we transmit at, is the backbone of the system. That's to move the large blocks of energy from one mm -hmm. area to another, not to serve individual utility substations like the yeah. lower voltages. So that system needs to remain in place. Yeah, and the types of things they're considered, there's some small-scale efficiency and demand response things you can do, but the bulk of what they're, what they're really looking at in this evaluation of non-wires is 
moving around generation sources. And typically when you're, when you're constrained on one part of your network, you'll lower a generator in one geographic area and kick up another one so that there's a, the energy's traveling sure. along different paths. Sure. Now one of the things they've suggested and one of the things they actually said in the original assessment was, now this could possibly involve generators south of the Portland area and potentially into California. So one of the things they're going to have to do is identify what generation at what cost and really figure out if that's a feasible technical solution to really take care of the magnitude of the electrical problem we're experiencing in the Portland area that we've identified as the need for this line. And they'll say, yeah, you could, no, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. We would suggest X, um, but they're really looking at the feasibility of that. But there's not a whole lot of generation south of Portland that you can turn up to feed the area from the south as opposed of going north, you know, the generation going north to south, the electricity traveling north to south, which is what's currently happening. So they're looking at it right now, but they said in the original assessment, we don't know how much is out there, but it's a potential solution. We're going to have to take a look at it. Sure, and I expect you've got some very large generator sources. You've got these huge dams on the Columbia River that are generating large sums, and you've got some distributed uh, sources, which are these uh, wind gen- uh, powered uh, wind turbine generators, distributing across areas where there never was a source before, mm-hmm. and um, maybe so. Is that part of the potential no build option where you're looking at more distributed sources like the wind power? Uh, uh, no. No, I think they're talking about you know, when you, when it's you're not. talking about that, you're talking about different consumption mechanisms, but by and large, the biggest, the biggest portion of the non-wires, my, it's my understanding that the assessment identified was kind of that moving around the generation, um, you know, redispatching generation, if you will, from one point to another mm-hmm. to feed the area from a different area to relieve congestion on the network, um, which sure. is what the other line would do. But if, if they can't actually figure out how to make that work, sure. we would then have to, they, they actually said in that assessment, BPA would definitely have to have the line on its original schedule mm-hmm. if, if all of these potential solutions don't work. And that's actually on the website. People can actually find that original assessment on the website we discussed, sure. and I'd encourage them to take a look. Well, as a consumer of electricity and one whose, whose life depends on, a livelihood depends on electricity, I hope that you can find an equitable way to actually strengthen our country, strengthen our infrastructure, be able to build a backbone in our area to complete the this whole prudence, which is really making sure we don't lose electricity or we're vulnerable. You have you have alternate ways. You got redundancies. You got things that just make it more reliable. I hope that you can find a way, and, the, and that uh, in the process, citizens will will they'll feel like yeah, the process worked. We're able to get it. We were heard. They listened. We found a compromise that we're that is about as good as we can expect. And I hope that works. So. You guys have taken on a difficult job dealing with all those different individuals in the public that we make up in order to try to find a way that satisfies the most people and get the job done. You must have a certain a good makeup to be able to endure that. I expect it could be very trying. There are days. <laughs> but, but the, yeah, there are days. But the, the people, you know, Doug would agree, the people are just really great to work with. Um, so, you know, we enjoy working with not only groups but individuals. We, we enjoy visiting people's homes and really learning what's important to them, you know, because sometimes that doesn't come across in just a written comment. Yeah, I but can. you have to see it in their eyes and, and have them explain to you 
what's important to them. So that's something that really will come to play later on also when we get to a preferred alternative. Then we're just going to get really serious and really listen to each individual homeowner or landowner, whether it be public or private, along the route that we pick as preferred because we're going to do everything we can to move things around and minimize impacts for them. So the process you're going through, you're not just trying to get her done, and, and you're, you're actually listening to people, trying oh, to yeah. you're taking what it, whatever measures you need to in order to build those relationships with people that, and establish that trust. And I joke, and I say there are days, but I've not had a bad conversation <laughs> with anybody. I've, I've had people who were very heated at the outset of a discussion, people who are very upset, very passionate, and, and very passionately bringing their concerns to me about the project and how it might impact them. and why they may or may not like something we've proposed. But by the end of the conversation, once they know how they can participate and, and you convince them, if you can, that, no, we haven't made a decision. We're not going to do just what we want to do. And it wouldn't be responsible to do just what we want to do. Because, quite frankly, we don't know what we're going to do. Mark's got some very smart people looking at a whole lot of dynamics between Castle Rock and Troutdale right now trying to figure out what the best thing to do is. Um, you, you, gain, you gain their trust. And, they, and if you talk to them and will listen to them, they understand you're just another person trying to do a job and trying to do what's best for them and ultimately best for the region. Um, so, no, no bad experiences. Sure. Some, some heated conversations. I mean, people are passionate about this, and I can totally understand that. Sure, and just the fact that you guys are, I, I put in a call to you guys, you responded right away, you say, sure, we'll, we'll talk. You're, you're open to, and there's... You didn't know what I was going to ask, but you're able to uh, answer the, the whatever, give a stab at whatever question I can ask here. And not an expert, but I represent one citizen here that hopefully can help to enlighten us, and get us more informed. But it sounds like there's no substitute for getting involved, for being None. informed, for participating. If you're going to speak up, now's the time to speak up. Yeah, the, 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 as, as smart as individuals may be, we make better decisions by working together. So I know that's true. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for participating. Our pleasure. I guess Thanks that wraps it for Clark County Today.